This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. First and foremost, a fascinating keynote speaker to kick us off this afternoon, Susan Morris. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Susan. Susan's keynote address, uh, which we will then follow with a panel, there will be time for Q&A, and then a panel discussion to close the conference. That panel discussion will go for an hour, and I'm very, very keen to get your involvement in questions uh, to the panellists. It's really a, a summary of what we've heard, the key learnings, and it is your opportunity, your last opportunity, to really pick the brains of some of these, these keynote speakers we've had here uh, over the last couple of days. It's a wonderful opportunity to do that. So utilise that time, and when we're ready for questions, I'll call upon you to, to take to the microphones. But this first session um, is a keynote titled, Misdiagnosed, Misunderstood, Missing Out, The Journey for Many. Now, Susan Morris is our keynote speaker here. Susan joined the team at Lynch Syndrome Australia in 2014, driven by her own experience with Lynch Syndrome a cancer-causing condition that's affected her family for five generations. She advocates for those living with this high cancer risk who face health, psychosocial and, of course, financial challenges. With a Masters in Strategic Communication, specialising in corporate social responsibility and storytelling, Susan has worked across many industries in Europe and Australia. She speaks five languages, which she says, <laughs> none of which helps her understand research studies on cancer genetics. Please, a very warm welcome to Susan Morris. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, these are exciting times for the health system. Exciting and dangerous. And dangerous, I think, for those of you who are trying to make the dream of personalized care a reality for everyone. It's always dangerous when you want to reform the system as radically as you do. I'm a historian by training, and these past two days have reminded me of a quote explaining the start of the French Revolution. Baron de Tocqueville famously argued that the most dangerous time for a bad government is when it begins to reform itself. And those noble intentions in France ended with Robespierre and mass murder and Napoleon and dictatorship, two centuries of unstable government, three more kings and five republics, I think. So, food for thought for those of you engaging on this reform for the health system. Because your reforms in medical practice and technology will not succeed in a vacuum. Because you actually need another kind of change to make it all happen. And this is where I come in. Because I'm here to talk about not your reforms, but a revolution. A conversation revolution. And to do this, I think I need to share three stories with you. Stories that might make you think about your impact on those you treat. Stories that might help you become a better health practitioner, administrator, or decision maker. 
stories that might just explain how your reformation can truly succeed. The first of these stories is about experience and a population health. In other words, being a patient. The second is about the joys of precision medicine, life as a health consumer. And the third, about what can go wrong with the idea of personalized care. And I've entitled this, Life as a Troublesome Client that Nobody Wants. Now, after I tell you these stories, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And I'm going to ask you, quite simply, to join the revolution. A revolution that starts with a different kind of conversation. So, story number one, the patient. Now, hopefully, people love stories, even people in the medical and health profession, because since the time before history, humankind has taught itself, has inspired itself, has identified itself through story and through song. Just think about the onion-layered dreamtime stories of Australia's First Peoples. Stories so vital and so sacred, so complex, they have to be taught one step at a time across a whole lifetime. I have permission, kind permission, to mention Big Bill Neji, a Gajugu man from the Northern Territory, who, when he was close to the end of his life, he was filled with sadness because there were no Gajugu people left to carry on the stories for him and for his mob. And he took a really brave decision. He decided to break the taboo and tell his stories to an anthropologist. And because of that, and because of the books that were published thereafter, his legacy now lives on in the Kakadu National Park. And if you're born Welsh, like me, stories are pretty much a way of life, because as you'll gather over the next half an hour or so, I love to talk, and I'm not unusual as a Welsh person. And especially if your first language is an ancient Celtic one, rich, layered, and imbued in linguistic complexity, like mine. Just imagine this. The most lauded person in Welsh-speaking Wales each year is not a sportsman, is not a celebrity, even though Kim Kardashian does get to go and meet Donald Trump, apparently. Well, quite how that happened today, I'm not really sure. So he's not a sportsman, or she is not a celebrity, nor indeed is it a royal. It's a storytelling poet. That's right, each August, our National Eisteddfod awards a coveted chair, beautiful carved chair, in reward for an epic poem. This poem is written in strict meter, and it must have cultural significance and tell an important story. So growing up in Wales, you really got used to the idea that everything has a backstory. Um, my great-aunt, Esther Mary, Hetty May to her family, was the genealogy specialist for South Wales. I mean, unofficial, of course. Um, she had a phenomenal memory for complex family trees going back many generations. She could predict a problem and also the probable character traits of your prospective spouse based on her encyclopedic knowledge of their antecedents. There were a lot of bad ones and wrong ones when I was courting, I can tell you. She understood all too well the impact of genetics and epigenetics well before Watson and Crick had even done their work. She could have told, for example, Elizabeth Taylor of the alcoholic risks of her prospective spouse, Richard Burton. 
He was born Richard Jenkins, actually, in the same village as me, a place called Pontry de Ven, uh, just a few doors down. The bar, which you see in the photograph at the rugby club, is named in honour of his father, who spent most of his life and his money in that bar, propping it up. So Elizabeth Taylor could have learned a lot if she'd come to speak to my Auntie May, but apparently she didn't bother. Um, and to be perfectly honest, when Elizabeth Taylor came to our village, she actually drank both men under the table at the bar. But I learned young, very young, that context and family history can mean everything. And it's in Wales that my first story about life in a Lynch syndrome family and my experiences with being a patient in receipt of population-based healthcare begins. This is George. To know George was to love him. After losing his father to cancer at the age of eight, George took care of his sister and his widowed mother. Offered a university scholarship in the early 1960s, he declined. Instead, he took a job. He wanted to bring in a wage so that his mother could stop taking in other people's dirty laundry and scrubbing her fingers raw. He was a clever young man, George. He left his desk job, though, at the education department in the local authorities to earn three times as much money as a labourer at the newly opened steelworks. And this was to better support his young wife and two young daughters. Now, as it was the case at the time, and still often is, George worked a three-shift rotational pattern hence the flap cap you see in the photograph. This meant that he worked while other people slept, slept while other people worked, and drank beer for breakfast on his way home from his night shift. At the age of 36, George started to feel unwell. He gave up the beer for breakfast and tried to walk a little bit more on his days off, but he didn't get better. And unlike most men in the 1970s, when he noticed bleeding when he went to the toilet, George went directly to his GP, four times over 12 months. Each time he was told, which was very common in that day, it's your diet, your shift pattern, pollutants at the steelworks, your beer for breakfast. He mentioned that his father and his grandfather and some uncles and cousins had died young of stomach and bowel-related cancers, but the GP really didn't care or perhaps actually didn't hear. Four years on, one metastatic bowel cancer and a lot of experimental chemotherapy later, at 40 kilos and worn out, George died. A patient it can be defined as one who suffers. That's the original origin of the word, and George had indeed suffered. A bag of bones held together by the tenuous sinew of willpower is how he was described by the minister at his funeral. After George, my father, died in her arms, my mother became one of the South Wales Valley's first ever muesli-making, organic-cooking hippies they'd ever seen. 1970s Wales, and I was eating all bran for breakfast. It was quite an unusual experience in those days. Because my mother knew, she knew, but she didn't know why she knew that her children were at risk. She knew, but no doctor then or later in the UK or Germany or Holland, where I lived during the 1990s, cared to know that our family was at risk of an aggressive cancer and at a young age. So throughout my 20s and 30s, I definitely did not experience precision medicine as I sought answers, support, surveillance and prevention. I mean, to be honest, it's fair to say we have a bit of cancer in my family. My lovely mother, who you see pictured here um, in, the, in, in her 20s, um, actually died in her 50s of ovarian cancer. Her father of prostate cancer and his mother of ovarian cancer in her 40s. 
On my father's side, he had, as you know, terminal bowel cancer in his 30s. His sister had endometrial, duodenal, and then pancreatic cancer. Her daughter, my first cousin, had bowel and endometrial cancer and died, unfortunately, of pancreatic cancer a few months ago in her 50s. The generations before, the picture's even worse. My great-grandfather, his two siblings, died of stomach cancers, bowel cancers in their 30s. His father at 34, and many more extended families members had suffered this. And no one knew why. Stop worrying, I was reassured. Just because both of your parents died relatively young from aggressive cancers, it doesn't mean you're at risk. There is no precedent for screening a young, fit, symptomless woman. No, you definitely do not need a colonoscopy. I eventually found out about and managed to gain access to ovarian cancer screening, which is actually current in the 1990s, with Professor Ian Jacobs, funnily enough, who's now living here in Australia and out at UNSW. Um, I also found a gastroenterologist who, after he'd conducted my colonoscopy, told me that though he had happily taken my money, I had completely wasted my cash and his time. I had the same risk as everyone else, and I should come back when I'm 60 and not bother anybody else. And by this time, discoveries had already been made, and the research well published about inherited cancer risk. But I was being treated within standardized risk profiles, and my individual risk factors were being thoroughly ignored. The work I'm talking about was pioneered by this man, an amazing man, Dr. Henry T. Lynch, an underage Navy gunner, erstwhile pugilist-turned-doctor, who persisted in researching the possibilities that cancer could be hereditary without support, and indeed with the derision of his contemporaries in the 60s and 70s. His work was finally published in the 1990s, but it seemed little understood or applied. Now, Lynch syndrome, which is named for this brave pioneer, is the most common inherited cancer risk. It's more common than BRCA1 and 2, and most likely, at, at conservative estimates, affects around 100,000 Australians, or one in 250 to 280 Australians. But most people have never heard of it, or at least, if they've heard of it, don't really know what it is. It is massively underdiagnosed, because fewer than 5% of people who are affected by this gene know that they're at risk. And I was just another patient in a population-based healthcare regime. And even with no cancer yet, I was definitely one who suffered. I suffered worry and neglect and disdain. If only I would be a good girl and trust my doctors. The problem was, my family had lost their trust in doctors a long, long time ago. And this is not an uncommon occurrence for people with Lynch syndrome. I can tell you, it is never a good thing when you know more than the experts in the room. It's a very scary place to be. Our report, published by Lynch Syndrome Australia, on a shoestring a year ago, is the first ever report in Australia on the experience of living with Lynch Syndrome, diagnosis, treatment, and care. And the research that we did to enable this report to be published makes it pretty clear. At almost every point of contact with the health service, we are misdiagnosed, we are misunderstood, and we are generally missing out on appropriate diagnosis and care. 
as I said, with only 5% of an estimated 100,000 Australians with Lynch syndrome properly diagnosed, and very few of these receiving appropriate surveillance and personalised care, this large group of people is losing out under a population health regime. How might it be better, you might wonder, under a precision medicine regime? I'm a communications professional, and one of the most basic theories we learn is to analyse the types of conversations that can take place. The most common mistake organisations make is to talk down to their staff or to their customers, to try to control what they know and hide information from them. This is known as parent-to-child communication. Uh, a couple of examples, when the Fukushima reactor went into meltdown, the Japanese authorities handled secrets like they were toxic and tried to bury them. Even more lives and all trust was lost. And they patronised the public and the press and they obfuscated and they downright lied. And this tactic of filtering information before it reaches the consumer is also being disinfected by the sunlight of the Royal Commission at the moment into banking. Day after day, we hear that bankers, brokers and salespeople didn't feel the need to engage in a mature conversation with their customers. They didn't feel the need to explain, to warn or to involve them about the risks and the disadvantages of some of the products and the services, only for those customers to lose their homes and their livelihoods without even knowing that homes and livelihoods were even at risk. And Unfortunately, some medical professionals are regularly guilty of the same filtering and the asymmetrical talking to those they treat. Just listing the risks of a procedure, for example, and the possible negative outcomes is no substitute for an adult conversation. In my 1940s, I arrived in Australia, sorry, in my 40s, not the 1940s, not quite that old, <laughs> feeling pretty old up here at the moment. So in my 40s, in Australia, my GP listened properly, not as a condescending parent to a worried child. And for the first time, someone really listened to my concerns and actually, for the first time in my life, took a family health history which included, of course, a myriad disparate cancers. And I was referred to a gynaecologist. And this gynaecologist, she listened too. Yes, you do have a strong family cancer history, but the screening methods you commenced in the UK, transvaginal ultrasound and CA125 testing, are now discredited as a surveillance tool. But nothing else has replaced it. So in the absence of more creditable methods of surveillance, I insisted on an ultrasound and a blood test, and the specialist reluctantly concurred. And investigations turned up an indication that required watchful waiting for six months. I watched, but I decided not to wait. And I returned for my follow-up after three months due to increasing discomfort and, and general lethargy. The receptionist at this point was quite ferocious in her refusal to let me have my appointment. But I insisted, she insisted, I insisted, but apparently I insisted more insistently. And... Um, <laughs> I was supported in this by my gynaecologist and affirmed by the finding of precancerous cells. And for most patients, the recommendation would have been to move, re just remove the errant cells and carry on watching and waiting. But for me, although I had no genetic diagnosis as yet, but with a watchful GP and a gynaecologist that listened, 
I had a radical hysterectomy and nephrectomy. So this was really, for the first time, a personalized approach based on my family history. So there were deviant cells, but not quite enough to test for gene mutations. But at my four-week checkup, the gynecologist's last words to me were, please get a colonoscopy as soon as you are well and able. I was recovered enough in about four months to face the prospect of colonoscopy prep, which some of you might already have encountered. And um, I was symptom-free, but I was diagnosed with a stage one bowel cancer. And after radical surgery, I was assured by the oncologist that no further treatment was needed. For the first time, I met my geneticist and heard the words, it's Lynch syndrome, the most prevalent inherited cancer condition. And I can tell you, for the next five years, I basked in the cosseted embrace of personalized care here in Australia. Six monthly oncology appointments, all tailored to the consideration of my own family history, my own cancer history, and moderating lifestyle and habits. I became a teetotal pescatarian who did all the mind, body, spirit activities you could possibly dream of. And this process, it made me, it made me feel safe. Safe from future harms, or at least assured that any future diagnoses would be early ones. We quickly unearthed and removed a small suspect DCIS from my breast. We moved to combined endoscopy and colonoscopy to keep a close eye on liver cysts and an inflamed duodenum, given the stomach cancer problems in my family, and a few other minor concerns. And all of these conversations were still parent to child, but my goodness, this was a consultative, let's sit down and discuss this cool kind of parent. And me, I was a really attentive child. Everything augured so well for the future. Um, I was a health consumer. I was shopping around for the best expertise and the best opinion. I was consuming health resources at a rapid rate, but I was feeling heard and cared for, and as safe or about as safe as someone with an errant gene can ever really feel. So how do you, as medical practitioners and advisors, rate your communications and your decision processes and your sharing on the parent-child axis. Because we know from our research that very few doctors know anything about this common condition, Lynch syndrome. And we've grown to accept that. But the least we expect is some humility and someone willing to learn and get up to speed so that you can help us. When you learn to speak a few languages, you realize that much is often lost in translation. Sometimes it's the words, sometimes it's whole phrases, or even just the unspoken spaces in between. And sometimes they just aren't equivalent words in the other language. I mean, I speak Dutch, and they have a wonderful word in, in Dutch, gezellig. And you mustn't say that after you've spoken, after you've just eaten, because it can become very messy, but gezellig in Dutch is officially translated as cozy. But it's so much more than this. It means cozy, it means friendly, comfortable or relaxing, enjoyable, it means gregarious, and it also conveys a really strong sense of togetherness and trust. In my native Welsh, we have the word hiraith, and it's often just translated as homesickness. Oh, but it's so much more deep and visceral than that. It's beckoning home with a wordless call. It's, it's a heartfelt cry from the soul with words unsaid. 
and it's the call of the soul to the resting place. So translating is always a tricky business. And I have come unstuck on several occasions because it's fair to say my confidence usually outstrips my actual linguistic capabilities. And French, unfortunately, is particularly dangerous. They have man traps called faux amis or false friends. Um, words in French and English, which sound the same, but they have very, very different meanings. I was caught on the very first graphic you see here. Um, I went into a restaurant, and at the time I was trying to eat as healthily as possible. So I went in and demanded to know what sort of preservatif they had in the meat that they sold in the restaurant. Um, I was actually asking him, obviously, how many condoms they had in the meat in the restaurant. <laughs> And um, I don't think I ever dined there again in the whole year I lived in Paris. Um, I've also made the mistake with uh, the next example I can give you, which is blessé and blessed. Um, a, a colleague of mine told me, most perturbed, that her, son, her young son was uh, très blessé. He was, he was injured. And I said, yes, he is très blessé. I said, he's, um, you know, he's got wonderful parents, he's a very blessed child, and he should be very fortunate that he's so blessed. Um, she didn't necessarily invite me around to dinner very often after that point, and it took me a few months before I realized what mistake I had made. And these are the mistakes you can make translating between languages, but you can also make mistakes in the same language. We can miscommunicate in the same language. I hadn't long arrived in Australia. My son had, had been a few months at his new school in year one, and my in-laws um, were over on a visit. <laughs> we hadn't long arrived in Australia, but it never really took them very long to arrive wherever we travelled in the world. And my son that day came home in tears. Why hadn't Nanny and Grandpa come to school that day? Everyone else's grandparents were there. Why hadn't I brought his to visit on Seniors Day? How was I to know that seniors in Australia meant older people, older aged people? In the UK, a senior is an older pupil at the same school. Now, Grandparents Day, that is something I might have understood. So, in the medical sphere, there are also medical false friends. And it's peppered with different kinds of false friends. And in, in the medical world, often as a patient, you can hear these words, and these friends, these false friends in language, can interfere with your work and sometimes get in between you and the person that you're trying to treat. So let's take the first offender. I have a long list, but I've just kept it short. The first offender on my list is mortality rates. Now, decisions are often taken not to offer or to continue treatment because mortality rates will be unaffected. This justification, however sensible it is in a clinical perspective, rings pretty hollow from the perspective of the person being treated. Mortality rate, well, surely that's just one consideration. What about life extension, quality of life? What about the psychosocial intangibles, such as hope and inner strength? And that's something we need in spadefuls when you, you, when you have a life living with Lynch syndrome and many other conditions. And the lack of impact of a course of action on mortality rate is not a reason to do nothing. Next on my list is the concept of harms, and we've heard a lot about that actually yesterday and today. 
And this is the basis for widespread decisions taken by clinicians to rule out options and courses of actions on the patient's behalf without the patient even knowing it. We heard yesterday, I think it was, from a, a, a Mackay GP that sometimes he believed ignorance is bliss. How does this square up with the mantra of shared decision-making? If you don't think that the patient can understand the variables and the nuances, well then, to be frank, I don't think you're probably doing your job properly and explaining it so that that person can access that information. It is your job to help the person you're treating understand. If you haven't got time to do this now, how can you possibly imagine that you will have time to give personalized and precision medicine to each and every one of us in the future? Next, another vexatious issue, the standard of care protocol. I've lost count of the times this was used as an explanation for why my preferred course of action or treatment was not possible. And I think for people in this room, if you're truly committed to moving comprehensively to a future of precision medicine, then surely this term and all it implies of closed doors, of limited options, of standardized funneling and churn of patients, that must become a thing of the past. But you must be wondering how I became quite so cynical. <laughs> and I'll come on to that in a second, because I've added one more to this list. Um, that's a, a phrase that came up several times yesterday, the phrase worried well. I would just urge you, please, to, to think about what you're implying when you're using that term and think about how you're denigrating the person sat opposite you asking for support and treatment when you're making assumptions about them being worried well. Because all you know about that person at that time is that they're worried. You actually don't know if they're well. So all of this leads me um, to the, the issue of the misuse of language and the power it yields and wields in our treatment and our care. And that takes me on to our third, my third story. And this is the client, How to, what it is to be a health client, but what it is to be a health client that nobody actually wants. So I'll continue my story, and unfortunately for me, my five years of personalized experience wasn't foolproof. And that's important to note, and for people like me to understand, because from about October, 2015, I began to feel a niggle in my hip, discomfort in my spine, enough to stop the Pilates and send me for an injection for a suspected bursa. Now, when you've had three operations in three years for three different kinds of cancers or precancers, it is only natural to question every twinge and pain, but I really am a natural optimist. But I'm not quite such a Pollyanna that I didn't insist on scans and MRIs over the period of two years, close your eyes, choosing wisely, um, just to check that there was nothing more sinister going on. By the time I got to the stage where physical work of any kind was impossible, and I was unable to lie flat or sit comfortably for any length of time, I appealed once more to Dr. Merrington, oh, my long-suffering GP, and I asked him to ask the radiologist to review their conclusions. He had to ask, three times, very, very nicely. Oops, <laughs> the radiologist had indeed missed something, not just once, but twice. Two masses of several centimeters that might indeed just have been the cause of the pain and discomfort. The cancer, unfortunately, this time was advanced, 
but the indeterminate pathology and the otherwise clear PET scan gave no indication of its origins. And it's at this point, this very point, the co-designed collaborative experience of precise and personalized medicine came to an abrupt end. When I no longer fitted neatly into any one of the silos that existed. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get to see a specialist if nobody can agree on the origins of your cancer? Do you really appreciate, as you work so hard in those silos of yours, how tough those steel walls are, and how isolated, and how very, very deep, and how long and lonely the drop is if you fall between the cracks. Melissa mentioned yesterday our consumer rapporteur, the issue of silos, and I can tell you it's, it's a lived experience for millions of Australians. So, just see your long-standing oncologist, surely, but it turned out after all these years of scrutinizing my whole body care, my oncologist was a gastrointestinal specialist, and since metastatic bowel cancer had been ruled out, he passed me on, and it really felt like I was, he was washing his hands. Enter the gynecologist, the gyne-oncologist in the rooms next door. She was young, she was keen, but she had no experience of Lynch syndrome, and that's not an unusual scenario, so I unfortunately washed my hands of her. I went back to my original oncologist and said, well, who is the best in this field? If you think it's a gynae problem, who is the best? Well, Susan, he conceded at the third time of being pressed, if you really want the bells and whistles, you probably should see the professor at the other side of town. Seriously? When faced with such a grim prognosis, which of us doesn't want the bells and the whistles? And meanwhile, I, have a, I had a lively return meeting with my original oncologist, and my gynecological oncologist who performed the hysterectomy six years before. And she ordered a retesting of the original samples to see what was missed. Oh, don't worry, it's definitely not endometrial. She washed her hands of me. The professor on the other side of town, oh, it's most probably endometrial. He was interested, attentive, suggested a clear way forward which he promptly backtracked on by email two days later and referred me back to the original oncologist who had already washed his hands of me and s suggested it might not be a gynecological cancer at all. I needed more tests, apparently, to rule out bowel, bladder, breast, peritoneal. Still no answers. I asked four oncologists about my prognosis and also about the potential efficacy of immunotherapy, known to work well with unstable tumours, as often Lynch syndrome tumours are. And to date, at that point, four different prognoses, and not one was prepared to offer immunotherapy without my favourite word, standard of care protocol. And what this meant in reality would be a dangerous operation involving the lower spine and psoas muscle that two surgeons at least had refused to contemplate and or some chemotherapy at the end of it. But I asked, isn't chemotherapy dependent on the primary cancer? And isn't it true that some chemos have been proven to be ineffective on Lynch syndrome cancers? And awkward silences ensued, as they often, so often do, in the vacuum of care that's faced by people with Lynch syndrome. So I decided to blow the super and the offset mortgage and fly to a center of excellence for Lynch syndrome in the United States. 
Unfortunately, my cunning plan was stymied within two days of departure when I was diagnosed with multiple embolisms and, in, in, and a particularly large one in my lungs, so there were no long-haul flights to salvation for me. So what's next? I asked myself. I asked myself because there was nobody else around to ask. This had now become a rather too personal approach to personalised medicine. I was completely on my own. And interestingly, and with a notable and noble exception of my geneticist, whose advice I'd sought on a couple of occasions, not one of those oncologists or surgeons has ever followed up with me, not even the oncologist who enjoyed my company and my fees for six years beforehand. I found out that unstable tumours like Lynch syndrome cancers often respond really well to checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapies, I asked everyone I met to find out about access to clinical trials. I was told that no trial would accept me unless, you've guessed it, I'd undergone standard of care protocol, because there were none around at the time for first-line treatment. So in ever-increasing pain and isolation, I ran two games at once. On the one hand, I called every pharmaceutical company and every large hospital directly to find out what trials they were conducting and for whom. And on the other hand, I went back to my young, pleasant gynae-oncologist and begged to have two courses of chemo, which was the minimum I needed to allow me to qualify for immunotherapy. And we were all set to start. And she just happened to mention in passing, of course, if you respond to the chemotherapy, you'll obviously no longer qualify for a clinical trial into immunotherapy. I was lost for words. I lost my mind and lost most of what little energy I had left to fight the inevitable path towards ineffective and mobility-threatening surgery. I walked away and I decided there had to be a better way because at this point I felt that the whole Australian healthcare system had washed its hands of me. No one had been managing my care for weeks and now no one really knew or cared what was going to happen. I just didn't belong anywhere. And meanwhile, deep down inside me, my lovely tumours were rubbing their hands with glee. It was at the end of a dark and bitter day a few days later. I actually received a call from a clinical trial nurse who'd been out to the office when I'd called a couple of weeks before to say it was rather unorthodox to have a patient ringing her directly. Um, anyway, they, yes, they were still recruiting. Uh, no, I didn't have to have followed standard of care because this was a first-line treatment clinical trial. But yes, I would have to undergo another biopsy to ensure that it was indeed endometrial cancer to qualify me for the trial. Because every trial has to have that uh, nomenclature attached to it. And yes, if everything went well, I could start in a week or two. Never before have I prayed for a pathologist to be clear-cut in their summary. Never before have I been tempted, more tempted, to bribe a public hospital official. <laughs> Never before or since have I rung a medical friend of mine and begged him to ring the pathologist and put pressure on the pathologist. But as it transpired, luck and good English was on my side and the biopsy was considered marginal, but acceptable. I started my treatment two weeks later and as I was receiving the first infusion of immunotherapy, I was crippled with excruciating pain in the exact places I knew my tumours to be. The immunotherapy was definitely getting its hands down and dirty with my metastatic cancer. Just two weeks later, I could walk again. 
A month later, after so much time of increasing and crippling immobility, I bent, I sat, and I slept freely, and I wept with relief. Now, the treatment's ongoing. I had my latest one just two days ago. And since this is a clinical trial, there is no data, big or small, on what happens next. Actually, I think I am the data. <laughs> um, and I, thought, I had thought that I was benefiting from personalized and precision approach to preventive care for six years. And in many ways, I was. But how real was that personalized approach if at the very moment my already complex situation fell outside the comfort zone of my existing team. This approach came to an abrupt halt. At the exact time when I most needed someone to assess my unique needs and support me through the most challenging time of my life. And how real was this care if actually two tumors of around 10 centimeters each could be missed twice despite the scans being scrutinized and analyzed. I can tell you this has not been and is, will not and does not continue to be an experience for the faint-hearted, for the diffident, for the quiet, for the humble. Luckily, I've rarely been burdened with any of those adjectives. Um, it really was an experience for a strident, or I should probably say an increasingly grumpy woman of a certain age, who had watched her parents, her aunts, and her cousins go gentle into that good night and who had decided that this was not for her. Because as, as, as a person in receipt of this care, it's not my goal to be liked, to be obliging, to be a good patient who causes no problem. It's my duty to access and avail myself of the best care and chance to live that Australia's healthcare system can afford me. And quite often, and very inadvertently, this is not what the system is designed to do. Precision medicine has meant that my cancer biomarkers were tested for suitability. This system is still entrenched, unfortunately, though, in outdated approaches to assessing the nature of your cancer and the solutions for those designed with, diagnosed with cancer. And the weakness is in the way it communicates means that personalized medicine still has a really long way to go to translate from the pages of research papers and mission statements to the lived experience of the average person. So this, this is where my revolution starts. Um, it's a new conversation. Because I am not your patient, and I'm certainly not a patient in need of activating. That's the latest one I've heard, activated patients. I'm not an almond. I don't need to be soaked in water and activated. It's not something which resonates or even makes any sense to somebody in receipt of treatment. I am not a health consumer. Deep down, that's not really the relationship because it's more than that. And I am not just a client, a, you know, a client in receipt of professional services. I'm your partner. A partner in a symbiotic relationship. Because let me tell you, without me, you're not able to practice. Without me, you're not able to experiment and research. And without me, you're not able to improve your skills and become better practitioners, researcher, or administrator. But with me, with me, you will be able to deliver personalized and precision medicine. But only if I am recognized fully, I am consulted fully, 
and I am involved fully. And let me tell you, despite all the wonderful marketing campaigns and slogans, it is not drug companies, pharmacies, health insurers, professional associations who are your primary care partners. It's not them. If personalized medicine is to succeed, then time, money, and a great deal of effort must be employed to change the prevailing culture and improve the conversation. It is we, whom, those whom you consult, advise, and treat, who must be your primary partners. We need to revolutionize the language that's used, the conversations we have, and the time we devote to developing proper partnerships. Because this is no longer a parent talking to a child. This has to be an adult talking to an adult. I recently read a report about last week, I think, about a conference discussion entitled Breast Density. Should we tell the women? Should we tell the women? Let's just see how the power of language might affect this scenario. As a doctor to a patient in a parent-child relationship, you could perhaps justify protecting me from information whose knowledge might not necessarily improve my mortality rate or my health outcome. But as my partner, not telling me something as germane to my health risk that directly affects a mammogram's efficacy is tantamount to infidelity. You don't want to cheat on your partner, now do you? So don't cheat on your patients. And we begin, therefore, to think about the relationship in a very different way when we've changed the language that we're using. We define a very different kind of relationship, hopefully one that's robust and enduring enough to complement and supplement the needs of a really demanding future as defined by personalized medicine. Your reforms in personalized healthcare will only succeed if you, to make its way out of this conference chamber, if you understand this and if you act upon it, and you've got to do that right now, because these are dangerous times, even more dangerous for your vision of a future healthcare if you choose not to act. You need to understand as the Baron did two centuries ago, that the most dangerous time for a regime is when it begins to reform itself. And it is your choice whether you want this change to be a bloodless and velvet coup or anarchic and destructive. So honestly, I implore you, make the partner revolution part of your vision for personalized and precision care. And talk to us as equal partners in a really exciting health future, because otherwise, you will ultimately fail. And nobody wants that to happen. Least of all, someone like me, an early adopter in precision medicine. And I really hope that thanks to the genomic medicine and the um, uh, capability of that precision medicine, that I'll actually be here to see it happen. Thank you very much.